Welcome to Counter Stories, a podcast by people of color, for people of color, and everyone else. I'm Anthony Galloway. I pastor St. Mark AME Church in Duluth, Minnesota, and I'm a senior partner at Dendros Group. Now I'm Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General with the state of Minnesota. Any opinions and statements that I make are solely my own and should not be attributed to my employer. And I'm Don Eubanks, associate at Dendros Group and member of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe Indians. I'm Holly Lee, owner of the Other Media Group and producer of Counter Stories. And joining us today is uh, an educator in the Twin Cities area, Kenneth Abom. Kenneth, welcome to Counter Stories. Yes, thank you so much. I appreciate y'all inviting me in. Excited to talk to y'all today. So so here's the conversation in the living room today. Um, (laughs) I worked in for 15 years in education. And one of the things that was true the moment I started It was also true for me, even as a student, is this conversation about the retention um, and the growth and the recruitment of teachers of color. Now, there are many iterations that came to across the desk and across the initiatives where I was, everything from from people who would go to HBCUs across the South and try to recruit to Minnesota. There were conversations about how long teachers of color actually stay. Um, And then we were finding very quickly that teachers of color, not only was it hard to get them here, but they weren't staying. Um, Three or four years into the mix, they were either leaving the state or leaving the profession for things that paid more for a whole lot less stress. Um, I remember a whole lot of administrators very, very frustrated with places like Target and Securian and Medtronic and many other places who um, could offer way better salaries and a whole lot less pressure uh, for, for, for teachers of color who they saw made very, very good employees. So there were a lot of issues that were talked about over and over again, let alone getting to curriculum and the treatment of other teachers or families and communities. And then the feeling of isolation being, you know, uh, a small percentage of an overall workforce. These are just the tip of the iceberg of some of the issues that I encountered at many of the administrative tables that I sat at in my 15 years working in education. I am curious for all of you today in the living room as we talk about teachers of color. Can we keep them? Can we recruit them? What do we do? Um, so let me toss that to you all. What? How have you all come into this conversation around the recruitment and retention of teachers of color? Yeah. So you know what I think when I think about you know the issues around recruiting and retaining teachers of color and indigenous teachers and especially Minneapolis Public Schools, which is you know the district where we do a lot of our advocacy. So I work for an advocacy organization called the Advancing Equity Coalition and. Um, you know, we are really focused on this issue around recruiting and retaining teachers of color in Minneapolis public schools, um, just because there's such little representation of our students of color in our teaching force. Um, and so, you know, it's funny, Anthony, the way that you, um, you, you just described like your own experience when it comes to teachers of color. MPS did a whole report like that laid out specifically all the different things that you laid out. And I'm not sure if you've read that report before, but like it was like almost word for word exactly what you were saying, right? There's not enough candidates in the pipeline. Um, there's not, you know, teachers of color feel very isolated. Um, they have a challenging work environment. Um, but then on top of that, and kind of one of the things that we're really working on right now is there are policies in place that also push our teachers of color out of the classroom. Um, and, you know, that is a huge issue because not only is it like we're creating a culture that is, 
you know, not sustainable for teachers of color to thrive and succeed in. But on top of that, we are also, we have like policies that say, look, we need to get rid of teachers because it's, you know, time for layoffs or accessing or whatever. And it's our teachers of color that are first on the chopping block. And like that can't be a sustainable way for us to continue to grow the diversity of our um, teaching profession, especially in Minneapolis. So, Brother Kenneth, this this is this is problematic for me to hear you say about that report because the um, they're known as the Minnesota Educational Equity Partnership now, but they used to be um, uh, the Minnesota Minority Education um, you know organization led by uh, Carlos Mariani. They came out with the Teachers of Color report with folks like. Um, with with several educational leaders for around, including Stephanie Crosby, who hired half of us that work in the West Metro, um, and they their report in I want to say the this would have been somewhere between two thousand nine and two thousand thirteen um, said very similar things. What's got my mind reeling a little bit is that not only did they find the similar details that you that you just spoke to in that report. But then there was also the work of a, of a group in 1997, 1998, who did, the, who did it again. And so we, we, we've known all of these challenges for now I can point to at least 23 years of, of you know, engagement around this big air quotes problem. And to your point, very little movement, even though people have, have worked hard. Uh, namely, namely, I, I just got to name Stephanie Crosby, who worked for Robbinsdale area schools for a long time. You know how many people single-handedly, educators of color single-handedly, that she brought into the space only to see them get burnt out and turned out or chopped off the block like you just described? You know, Anthony, I don't know <laughs> uh, why that's a surprise living in Minnesota, right? Because in Minnesota, we have a practice of and we meaning collectively researchers and policy leaders across the state. And the practice is they uh, delve into research, right? So a lot of time and money is spent to conduct the research. Then the, when the research reports are issued, there's, uh, there's a number of years that is spent discussing the research and admiring the research report. So that takes X number of years. And then the data in the research becomes dated. So then the next step is to research it again and start the cycle again, right? It's research, admire, discuss, research again, you know, uh, discuss, admire, and right. it's just a yes. cycle, right? So we're When's not- When's the see- action? When's the action? Correct. Coming? Where's a sense of urgency in this, you know, to change it, right? So that's that's my response, uh, Anthony, to to your statement. It's like, look, we shouldn't be surprised because we're in Minnesota and this is the way it gets done, which it doesn't get done. Right. So there's there's that thought. Uh, I think I might be the only person who is actual product of Minneapolis public schools. So I was born and raised in Minneapolis and I'm a product of that school system. And as we have this conversation, I can't help but kind of think back on my own experience in school and I'm much older. So I, you know, I, I'm a product of the, I'm a baby boomer. So I started, you know, school in the late fifties, like 59 and graduated in 72, 73. But I came through at a time that as a result of desegregation, civil rights and desegregation, 
When I think back of when I went through school, I went to Grant Elementary School in North Minneapolis, Willard, uh, Lincoln Junior High School North in Minneapolis Central. I had teachers of color wherever I was at, or also administrators of color. And But when I think back on that, it was because of that wave of, of a result of the civil rights desegregation and that push, because these were some of the first and early educators. There were others, but I always I, I felt very fortunate that I had teachers of color in my experience. And then when I was a sophomore at Minneapolis North, as a result of uh, the American Indian Movement, um, I had one of the first Native American liaisons that was hired by Minneapolis Public Schools at Minneapolis North. So I feel very fortunate, like it was just a part of my life to have a teacher color. Um, but to hear this discussion, because I'm always hearing, I've been out of you know school for so long, and lose is exactly right. I mean, not only in education, but I think we've had a, a, a two or three other previous Counter Stories podcasts where we talked about the difficulty of retaining talent of for uh, from communities of color, Black, Indigenous, and other folks, regardless of whether it's in education, business, or whatever. I mean, even where we were at when we were originally with NPR. They suffered from the same issue. And so I think this, it's kind of a systemic issue across the board. But Ken, I'm wondering, is there a difference? Is there a difference in those, in those findings between individuals who are homegrown versus individuals who are recruited and brought in from out of state in terms of retention? Yeah, that's a great question, Don. And you know, I don't, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know if that was studied. Whether that was, you know, um, whether we, we, there's like the Grow Your Own program or Minneapolis, like lifelong Minneapolis residents, MPS graduates. Um, I'm not sure if that element of it was studied. Um, but we do know that, like, you know, you grow up in a community, you're a part of a community that you have buy-in and maybe like a greater sense of persistence through, you know difficult settings at the same time. And, you know, going back to the, you know, my original kind of point and, you know, some of the advocacy that we're doing right now, like you can have all the persistence in the world. And also we have policies that are like also removing you against your will um, from the system. Right. And so, you know, I think that is a really, really big issue, especially now because Minneapolis public schools and the Minneapolis Federation of Teachers are currently negotiating about all kinds of things. And right now the Minneapolis Federation of Teachers is, you know, in the process of, you know, voting on whether they should strike or not, according to, to for better working conditions. And one of the major areas of concern, conversation, discussion is around the protections for teachers of color. Um, and even though both sides have agreed, like, yes, we want to protect teachers of color outside of seniority order from layoffs, there's still not an agreement on the table. And the biggest issue is that teachers of color could be laid off um, in the next couple of weeks heading into next school year because there is no protection in place. And so there's an opportunity to bargain now, get an agreement done and protect teachers of color so that we don't lose any going into next year. But that would require both sides to say, look, we want to get this done. This is a priority. And, you know, that's that's the challenge right now is like, can we make sure that they they take that seriously despite everything else going on? 
We should clarify when you say Minneapolis Federation of Teachers that that's the union, right? That that's the union protecting the teachers. So first point of clarification. Second point of clarification is what you're alluding to here, Kenneth, if I can simplify it just a smidge, which is the union uh, policies that are written as part of the protection is last one in, first one out. So if you are the last to be hired in terms of timing, you will be the first to lose your job in terms of timing as well. Correct. Yeah. And so, you know, this is a like seniority based layoff system, right? And so, yeah, just like you said, loose last in first out policies um, that dictate how, you know, which teachers are let go. And since there's, because there's like a very close relationship between seniority and race in Minneapolis public schools, we know that our white teachers have a higher seniority and our teachers of color have lower seniority. And so that's why our teachers of color are so vulnerable every time that layoffs are impending. And for Minneapolis public schools, layoffs are impending for a while now because we can, like Minneapolis public schools continues to lose enrollment as well at the same time. And so as you lose enrollment, you lose revenue and then you need to cut staff. You know, one of the things that would come up often when we would work on on, on some of these retention issues, especially grow your own programs. Um, you know, one of the things that the um, Minnesota Educational Equity Partnership um, came out with their report on teachers of color in, in 2013-14 was, was the... Um, what was the fact that you can do all the work to bring somebody in, but then you have to convince somebody to stay. And this isn't unique to the teacher to, to, to teachers. This is, as Don was alluding to, many different sectors have this problem. I need to be able to wrap around and convince you to live and set down roots here um, for, for a job. And that can be difficult for folks of color. Um, that's not the same for their white peers and counterparts. And so the, the um, transplants, as, as, as we call them, right? The transplants. Yeah. And, and I mean, that's yeah. the whole so, reason why like an organization like Greater MSP, like that's their big initiative is to retain uh, transplants, especially transplants of color. A lot of folks are being courted right out of college to come to Minnesota to work for places like Target Corporation, General Mills. They get here, they're put into corporate housing. They don't get to meet anybody in community, right? They don't get to meet folks within their own community, so they leave. I mean, uh, we, uh, Toussaint talked about that in our last show, even. But but that's not that's that's like a tip of the iceberg piece is is yeah. the is the yeah. is the thing, right? Because you know, even if I were to get you connected into a, a, a community route, you know, one of the things that Minnesota has a challenge has has a challenge for, even across the board, irrespective of race. Is, is this notion that if I can't tell you what high school I went to here, how I'm connected here, like there are certain things that are really cloistered in pieces that are working for our kind of general community acceptance in here that we aren't even aware of. Don, the fact that you can name having gone to North High School um, immediately, in, you know, endears or opens up a world of conversations to you that's not the same for somebody else. So that layer, and then add on to the fact that um, <clears throat> for the amount of money that we pay teachers— Versus the work that they actually do, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, um, the education uh, education's in crisis already because the amount of work and that that it takes to do is outpay is is not on par with the with the compensation. So why would I get into that field? The only other thing I want to add to this mix is even in the grow your own programs, it's a matter of trying to you know so many of these programs are are about um, you know have to include so much helping to cope with the system as it is 
that that in itself becomes a deterrent speech. Why, if I have, if my experience in school was surviving a white supremacist system, why would I want to turn around? You know, if if I'm going to make the choice to go into it, I'm almost already at the, at the gate making a choice to try to get into systemic change. Add that to the mix of all the stresses that come come with it. And I'm going to start choosing other professions. And so the teaching profession is already having to decline generally. And so, you know, when you add into the racial intersection, you're again looking at another set of challenges. And so, Brother Kenneth, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, you know, if you think about all those compounding effects, you, you mentioned last first in, last out as, as one of the, the union policy spaces. But up there, you're also tracking other policy issues that are adding to this layered uh, barrier for teachers of color, right? Yeah, definitely tracking additional issues, right? You know, looking at the the barriers to entry for teachers, especially teachers of color, um, you know, looking at ways to retain teachers of color, um, you know, and also I think one of the things that we have to acknowledge is the fact that our spaces, and again, specifically in Minneapolis public schools, where about over 80% of our teachers are white, right? Like that's, that's what we're dealing with right now, um, is... The culture in our buildings, right? And, you know, there are definitely the district runs a lot of the culture. The district administration, I should say, runs and sets the tone for the culture. Principals and building administrators definitely set the tone for what's in their buildings. And also the teachers in our buildings help drive the culture for students and for their other staff members, right? And for the ESPs, the educational support professionals, right? And so, I think what's really difficult is like, is to say, you know, let's protect teachers of color. Let's look at the policies. Let's look at the culture. Let's look at, you know, the, the technical aspects around the pipeline and all that stuff. And also we have, it is all built to serve a largely white profession. And it's a very, very difficult thing to break down and parse apart if you don't have, um, if you don't have a way to say like, to call that out and say like, we need to examine all of these issues because right now these issues are so intermingled and also so personal to people's lives and, you know, all the attacks coming from all the different directions. But, you know, that's just a difficult thing to figure out, I I guess. We should also unpack one more issue here before we go further, which is a statement you've made about the school losing enrollment. And I think that's critical because both St. Paul Public Schools and Minneapolis Public Schools are losing enrollment. And I have my theory. I'd love to hear your theory and, and the rest of the crew's theory. But my theory, having worked in education, equity, public policy for about 10 or 12 years before uh, being in the position I'm in now, the basis is my understanding of what's happening when Students are fleeing out of, so they are leaving Minneapolis public schools. They are leaving St. Paul public schools because they cannot teach our students of color and indigenous students correctly, meaning there is a higher uh, rate of dropouts and lower academic um, results for our BIPOC children. And our BIPOC families have recognized that and are now choosing to leave these two public schools in particular um, and seek out higher education quality schools that are within the local areas that are not those schools, meaning they are likely to be either charter schools 
or they're likely to be private schools. Does that align with your understanding why there is a flight away from these public school systems? Yeah, you know, I think it's a it's a bunch of things, right? Like, I think it is some of the um, the like charter school, private school options that parents and families have. Um, also, like surrounding districts are doing a, uh, their own job and trying to market to the families in both of these school districts. So, you know, some of the smaller suburban schools districts around them are really trying to recruit, you know, Minneapolis residents to come in and, you know, you know, do things and, and enroll in their schools. So I think that's an important um, aspect of it as well, because I do think we treat especially charter schools in Minneapolis like the boogeyman, like they're the one that's stealing all the enrollment. Well, what we know is that it's like about 50% is charter schools and 50% are other school districts, right? And so it's it's also this, you know, um, concept of open enrollment where you can enroll in a district that's not your specific school. So I think that is something that we have to also make sure we are clear about with people as people try to make, yeah, like I said earlier, charter schools, the boogeyman in this situation. Um, but yeah, I think to the reasons why people are leaving these bigger school districts, specifically Minneapolis and St. Paul is around, you know, academic access and quality access to a quality education, um, you know, access to unique offerings, um, perceptions of safety, right. And, you know, we're recording this, we're having this conversation right now, um, just a few weeks or within a week of a student at North being killed right outside of North high. Right. And so, like those are things that families have real concerns about. And that's not to say that Minneapolis public schools and the city of Minneapolis isn't a safe place to be. But also there are concerns and perceptions of fear that people have around some of our communities and around some of our neighborhoods that are driving a lot of families to seek other opportunities. And, you know, if you have the type of system that is more adaptive, more technically sound, that can meet some of the needs of some of these families, you know, it's... And there's not a whole lot that Minneapolis Public Schools is doing to demand that they stay, right? Um, there's not a lot that they're offering to say, like, yes, you should stay because you have access to all these things. Now, Minneapolis Public Schools did just, you know, do a redesign of their district last year and are starting to implement it this year to try to recorrect some of that um, to say, like, every school should have similar offerings. All high schools should have two languages, you know, not things that are necessarily blowing it out of the water for different um, schools who have had less resources in the past, but it's a start to tr- try to really make good on a promise to say every child in Minneapolis public schools should get a high quality education. I think like for us, a lot of my, for my community, like a lot of these charter schools that offer language, um, Hmong language options is like really attractive to folks like my generation who feel like we're losing our language. And so it's like, oh, this is a great opportunity for them to be able to do that. And I know St. Paul Public Schools has started to um, do that as well. You know, I, I visited a school, um, Noble Academy in Brooklyn Park, oh, yeah. uh, which is a, a mainly Hmong school run by uh, Hmong folks. Um, and there's, they were like, yeah, most of our students are Hmong, but our second largest population were African-American students because, you know, the the community around the school recognized that um, that school there, they were doing uh, much better than the public schools. And so a lot of people within that community started sending their kids to this uh, noble academy because they felt like they were going to get their students would get better attention and better 
education because this school was testing at such a higher rate than the public schools within their area. Um, I'm from I'm in St. Paul. I, I'm born and raised in St. Paul, St. Paul Public School uh, product. A couple of years ago, actually, two teachers came to my door. They were door knocking, asking people why uh, their students or their kids weren't attending St. Paul Public Schools. So they came to my door and I was like, well, I don't have kids. You know, I don't know what to answer or what to say. And they're just like, well, you know, um, enrollment has declined so much. And we're just going around asking folks, like, why do you think that is? And as far as I know, enrollment is still going down. And now there's like a huge deficit in the budget. Right. But I don't know what came out of that study. They were going door to door at one point um, pre-pandemic, obviously. Um, and I don't know if anything ever came out of that. I know that St. Paul Public Schools ended up closing a bunch of schools, one of which was a school that I went to. You know, Don, I'm curious, just as we've been talking about our urban environments, you your daughter went to school in a suburban school. Um, and I'm just curious as I think about, you know, the offerings versus versus not. I'm curious about her experience um, growing up in a suburban environment, given we've been talking so much about urban sites as it pertains to te- teachers of color. Did she have any teachers of color growing up? You know, um, uh, well, yes, be- well, um, mixed bags. So we sent her to the French immersion program here in St. Paul. Okay. When she was in grade school. That's La Trois de Nord. Exactly. And yeah. so there, the, the, uh, uh, the staff was very diverse. The principal yeah, was have- from... You know, from from Africa. And so, and so, um, but when she, and at that time, we, you know, we actually lived in St. Paul. Okay. And then uh, after she, well, when she got, when she was a little bit older, we moved to Roseville. And then that's when she went to uh, junior high school and, and high school out here in Roseville. And even though we live in Roseville, we actually live in a part of Roseville that's part of the Moundsview school system. So once she got there, then the diversity became sparse. So I'm not saying there weren't teachers of color, but there weren't, they weren't as abundant as they were in her, in her uh, grade school experience in in uh, St. Paul Public Schools. And so, but, you know, speaking of my daughter, she, um, is attending the University of Iowa in early education. She wants to be a teacher. And, and so, you know, and she's, she's excited about it. So she got accepted in her sophomore year. She's well on her way. She, she, um, um, she's in her sophomore year. And so she's, she got accepted into the college and she's excited about it. She loves working with young people. Now, where she's going to settle, I was, as a dad, right, I was working like heck to keep her here in Minnesota to to get her degree. But she followed her her older brother, you know, her older brother went to the University of Iowa and played football there. And and I guess, you know, even though I'm a graduate from the University of Minnesota, uh, the draw to, you know, she ended up down there. She's another Hawkeye. So I have two Hawkeyes in the family. So, you know, I'm, I'm assuming that she's going to end up back here in Minnesota, but there's no guarantee, you know? And, and so, you know, this discussion is timely in terms of this. And, 
And there's things happening, you know, there there are things happening all over the place. And the fact that she's enrolled at Mille Lacs, you know, I, I know there are some opportunities for Indigenous folks um, around education or getting degrees in education to teach. I know there, there were some things here. The problem was that while she would have been eligible for some of that scholarship funding, um, you had to stay here in the state of Minnesota in order to access that funding. Um, but before I forget, I, I wanted to comment on what Kenneth had said earlier in terms of some of the issues that were faced inside these educa educational systems that, that teachers were in, uh, in, encountering in the environments that they were at. And as you were explaining that environment, Kenneth, I, I couldn't help but smile because it's the exact same environment that I experienced in higher education um, trying to achieve tenure. And so what you were describing is the exact same experience that higher education folks find, especially those of us of color, indigenous, black, and other communities of color experience when we go through that tenure process. Because generally, everyone else on your tenure committee is white. And not that that's bad, but when they don't understand the additional pressures we have in the classroom. Um, even So even here in Minnesota at Metropolitan State University that prides itself on being able to educate a diverse community, many of our students are having... Are, are seeing someone like me, 6'2", 300 pound, you know, brown guy with black curly hair, biracial, black indigenous individual, they've never seen a, a, an individual like me in a classroom. And they're not quite sure how to react. And then when I'm teaching a subject matter called comparative racial and ethnic analysis, it gets even deeper. And part of your obtaining tenure are part of that relies on the feedback you get from students, hmm. right? Now, I don't know if that happens in the, in the uh, Minneapolis school system. I don't know if teachers have to, you know, uh, part of whether or not they're retained has anything to do with feedback they, re they uh, receive from students, but on, a hi on higher education, a part of that is, is written in there. And so that creates a whole unique dynamic that we as educators in higher education find ourselves having to tap dance around in order to achieve tenure. And so I just wanted to share that because it sounded like those environments were about the same, whether you're in higher education or schools. Yeah, Don, you know, I think that it, you know, what you're bringing up in terms of your experience is something that I've been thinking about in terms of, you know, what are we doing and who are we asking to do it, right? Because, you know, I have this concern around earlier, like I said, and I'm not making this up, like the Minneapolis Teachers Union is, you know, 80%, over 80% white. Um, and so we are asking the eight, over 80% white union to put aside their own privilege and say, we want to protect our, all of our teachers of color from layoffs. And that means we will put our white teachers on the chopping block over our teachers of color. And, you know, 
I think that is something that you, we have to like, it's frustrating that that's what we have to ask for because all we're saying is like, look, we know that teachers of color and indigenous teachers make an, a big academic difference, especially to our students of color, but also for all of our students. Um, but we have to fight and say like, we deserve to be in the classroom and we don't deserve to be disproportionately removed from the classroom in this whole, you know, seniority based layoff situation. Um, and then on top of that, then yeah, like you're saying, you know, we have, you know, people who are driving a culture, again, an 80% white, um, workforce in our buildings who are driving these cultures and who, you know, put, you know, teachers of color on in a bad and uncomfortable place at times and make them feel uncomfortable, make them feel unwanted, unseen, invisible, right? Like these are things that we've heard from teachers of color about their colleagues. And this isn't to say that that's all on the union. That's not necessarily all on the union. But what it, what we are saying is, is an important thing for the union to recognize is like, you have, they have come out publicly and said, this is a priority for us. We want to protect our teachers of color. Now, when it comes down to making an agreement so that not a single teacher of color has to be let go this year before this, you know, before layoffs start happening. Now it's, now it's where rubber meets the road. Do, do your words match your actions? Can you get this done despite, you know, uh, impending strike in Minneapolis public schools, right? Like, can you put aside those differences to ensure that whatever you win out of negotiations, teachers of color also benefit from that? And all of our teachers of color, not just the ones that, you know, have enough seniority to stay. So that's the proposition we're putting in front of us. And Anthony, I know you're about to chime in. So, well, I was just, I'm, I'm I just, um, the depth and complexity of it, right? Because as we talk about the declining enrollment and for other options, and you, and I think, I thank you so much for bringing in. Um, this notion because charter schools were were put forward as the bad guy for so long. I actually, my first job in education was the family and community liaison for the program that was offering suburban options in Minneapolis because of the 2001 lawsuit, the Choice is Yours program. So you can open enroll and in the Eastern City of Min- in, 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 in Minneapolis, there's a busing program that allows you to select a suburban option. Now, this is even though <laughs> if you want a place that has the the highest chance of you getting a teacher of color, the um, our urban districts are the ones. St. Paul has the largest percentage of non-white teachers of twenty at twenty point four percent. This is twenty twenty data. I don't have the the the, the two year two year wait, data. Wait, wait, say that again. Say that again. St. Paul, Minnesota, or St. Paul Public Schools uh, is above twenty percent non-white teachers, followed by Minneapolis with at least in 2020 at 15.3%, followed by, and I'm just trying to take a page out of your book, lose our, our, our data person, um, <laughs> Brooklyn Center <laughs> follows that with 15%. Um, so as you go through this list, um, and you can look it up on the MDE's website, or you can look, you can also look at the um, Educator Licensing, Licensing and Standards Board. Um, uh, you, can, you, can, you can look at that and you see that it's, Minneapolis, St. Paul, and its surrounding suburban districts, mostly in the West Metro. The next set of our Minnetonka, Richfield, St. Louis Park. When it is, and then now we're into percentages that are around ten percent. Understanding that nearly half of Minnesota school districts don't employ any teachers of color at all in the first place. So there's this interesting nuance between declining enrollment, choices to leave. But what you're doing then is you're you're leaving for something that you're sure to be less diverse than which you where you've been before, and to deal, you know, it's about what challenge. As a parent, 
One of the things that's tough for us in even making choices within St. Paul, my children were attending a school that was much more culturally rich in terms of the kids in the school and the programming in the school, but it was suffering academically. Mm. And we had to make a decision to send them to a school that we liked better for its inclusion of art and academics. But we also then had to contend with the fact that we would be doing a lot more. We would have to push into a lot more of the cultural realm because we knew they were going to be going to school with more white kids and, and have to deal with that trade-off because now they're having situations coming back home that are vastly different than the school they were at before. So, so it's a complicated issue as a parent trying to send kids, you know, trying to send your kids someplace, let alone a teacher who's looking at this situation and going, hmm. Maybe I'll do maybe I'll take my teaching trade to something else that's less pressure and more money. So you so yeah, so you just described my daughter's experience. And as a parent, um did you find you know, I found myself then taking taking uh working hard to take care of the cultural piece for her. All right, because she's very diverse and um so I know she wasn't getting that in the classroom at Moundsview. Um, we actually, um, when my son went through St. Paul Public Schools, he attended a Capitol Hill gifted and talented program. So there were um, there were a few teachers of color there, but you know I've shared an experience where his second grade teacher asked me to come in and, and talk to the kids about American Indians. And the first question she wanted me to address was, what kind of structures do they live in? Well, that wasn't coming from the kids. That was coming from her, right? And I couldn't help but think, wait a minute, this is the gifted and talented program. And uh, But anyways, I digress. So we, we lived in a Como neighborhood at that time, and we wanted to send our son to Central for that very reason for the cultural diversity Plus, Central had a very good AP program there. Show did. And, I was a mint and, product and, of it. And, uh, but we lived outside the catchment area, and so they were going to send them to Como. And we didn't, we didn't, Como didn't have as strong an academic program. It was very diverse, but it was, I didn't feel it was as strong as Central. So we but ended Don, up, but Don, we ended up I, sending I, him to Cretan. Oh, oh, right. Oh, oh. And, See, now, now you're taking us to a deep. You see what I was saying earlier about knowing what school you went to in Minnesota just, and welcoming. But you just said that to a centralite. But, but that's because he didn't get into central, right? And so we sent him. Well, and that was because of his mother. His mother went to uh, to Durham. Well, mm-hmm. every hair in the back of my neck stood up when she suggested we send him to Creighton because it was a Catholic school. With hindsight, um, uh, Creighton was a very good school. He had a very good, got a very good education. My daughter got a very good education from Moundsview. And Moundsview also had a Native American uh, liaison program there. So there were some extracurricular activities that she could, she could, uh, take part if she elected to. But the cultural piece, that she wasn't getting in school, she was getting at home. But there's, you know, some of us can take care of that. Many others can't. Right. Right? Exactly. I mean, like, our schools were, our schools were selected based on how close it was to our house. Because there, 
you know, eight kids in my family. We had one car. It was, you know, whatever we could walk to would be ideal. Wherever the buses were, that was what was, you know, what we needed. We didn't, as as immigrants, my parents didn't really know, you know, what was being offered, what wasn't being offered. We were acting as translators at our own conferences. So honestly, we could have told my mom and dad that we were doing great, even if our teachers said we were doing poorly. Right. And so we didn't, you know, some te- some parents aren't set up to be able to offer those things at home. And that's why having teachers who look like you is so important. My kindergarten teacher was Hmong and it was a huge deal. Like we had her over. Mm. She came to our house. She ate with us. We had her at ceremonies and stuff because it was like amazing at the time. It slipped to have a seamlessly between. But slip, slip seamlessly between cultural nuance and, yes. and things like that. That you, and it made you us feel so comfortable, especially because mm-hmm. like when we when we were young, we only spoke Hmong because my mom and dad only spoke Hmong. Grandma and grandpa only spoke Hmong. Spoke Hmong. So when we first got into school, I was talking to everybody in Hmong. Didn't matter what skin color you were. I just assumed at that point that everybody knew Hmong. You know, and so having that teacher who was able to like communicate with me and be like, okay, yeah, I get it. Like you're Hmong and that's what you speak, but like in this country and being able to walk through that process with me was so important. And I think that made a big difference for me. So, you know, you've talked, we've talked about the cultural importance and all, and, and um, I'd like to, to hear more from Kenneth in terms of the actual importance of having teachers of color, because we, we've kind of danced around it in different ways, but academically, we know based on research that it is, it is uh, better for our BIPOC students to actually have BIPOC teachers. And when we think about when there isn't that choice, the adverse impact it has academically for the student, but then also the biases that come. And so I'm going to just make two points before I, I, I throw it over to you, Kenneth. The first of which, I have a really close friend. She's not at one of these, um, I'll just say St. Paul Public Schools. Uh, and she noticed that there was an abundance of black male uh, students, in particular lower grades, that were all being funneled to the uh, EBD, Emotionally Behavior Disorder mm-hmm. Classroom, right? And yep. she, as a black woman then, was really curious about why Why is that? What is a pattern? And what she learned was they were not emotionally behave. Uh, they didn't have emotionally behavior disorder the way they had been labeled by the school. They are actually gifted children. They are gifted students that the teachers, the white teachers, refused to take the time to develop and acknowledge that they were gifted and give them then the challenging uh, assignments. So they were bored in the classroom and instead they goofed off and they got labeled as having emotionally behavior disorder, right? There's that one point. And then the second one is, as long as we're talking about our children, are my two daughters having had really um, disturbing racially based incidents, mm. bias in the classroom from yeah. white teachers as, as biracial, uh, they're uh, Afro-Latinas, right? And so, They've got uh, race and ethnicity going on. So one child who was in the gifted program 
but being pulled back and not allowed to participate in the gifted program because she was the only black girl in that classroom by her white male teacher. And then my second daughter, who goes up to the white male teacher in high school, so two different white male teachers, and we always have said to our girls, if you don't understand something, approach the teacher and ask for an explanation of her help. So she approaches this math high school white male teacher and says, in her words, I don't get it. Can you explain it to me? I don't get this lesson. He not even looks up from his papers that he is grading and says to her, I don't get how you don't get it. You just need to do better. Doesn't explain to her what the math problems were that day. Doesn't take the time. And he basically dismisses her with his response and refusal to even have eye contact with her, right? So if you can speak to the academic advantages of having BIPOC teachers, not only for BIPOC students, but for all students that I think we really need to unpack so that people really understand the importance of having BIPOC BIPOC teachers and not losing them in this tug of war, so to speak, that the union is is uh, presenting. Yeah, you know, I think what is really important, I was also, and I think this connects well to um, Don's point earlier, which is, you know, I think people have this idea around like, oh yeah, you need to escape these urban districts to get a great education. The fact of the matter is, is that white students are getting, in Minneapolis public schools, are getting one of the best educations in the, in the country. Like, honestly, and I, I don't mean that like sarcastically, I'm not, this is not hyperbole. Like this is real. Like they are getting one of the best educations in the country. Um, and I don't think it is a coincidence that it's, that we also have 80% of our teachers are also white. Right. And versus, and so the issue that happens is like that our students of color who make up a majority of our district, um, an overwhelming majority of our district are not getting a great education right now in Minneapolis public schools. Um, and so, yes, the research definitely shows that students of color, um, well, all students actually benefit from um, a diverse teaching workforce. And it improves specifically student engagement, student achievement, high school graduations, um, and then also college attendance. On top of that, we know that um, like, Black, if if a student shares an identity with their teacher, especially a racial identity, that those, all those benefits are amplified, right? So if you're a black student with a black teacher, you're more likely to be even more engaged. You're more likely to um, you have a lower rate of dropout. And on t- and then finally, you know, to your point again around some of the like classification, understanding people's behavior stuff, um, we know that teachers of color can see students of color's behavior, not, not as like something that's disruptive and unmanageable, but as, as a type of, as a type of communication, right? Like all behavior is communication. And so they can see that and can assess and deal with that differently that then we know that white, white teachers are not necessarily doing right now for students. And that's why we have in Minneapolis public schools, um, students of color are getting suspended at five times the rate of white students currently. And right? that's apples and that's to apples not, data. I don't think that's a coincidence when, we look, when we're looking at our student population and our teacher population. I, I love you bringing that point, Brother Kenneth, because that's apples to apples data. A lot of times folks will say, well, they're behaving more. No, 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 no. 
they're five times more likely to be referred for the same behaviors as their white counterparts. And so I, I think I, I, I'm so glad that you brought that forward. You also bring forward a dilemma I have in the data around teachers of color as well, because, um, you know, I, I love the fact that the educational attainment of folks who have, of all kids who have a, a, a teacher of color who can have diverse perspectives uh, shown to them, that's great. My issue is, <laughs> um, <laughs> so when I've had educators of color, one of the things that they imparted to me in addition to being able to communicate in a different ways, bring some different perspectives, I will absolutely say that my interest level in schooling, now this is after Central, because uh, I was in AP and IB courses at Central, but I was also then assured that I wouldn't see people of color until lunchtime or other classes because there wasn't mm -hmm. other people of there were very few other people of color in the classes with me. Mm -hmm. we, were, we were a handful of folks. Which is a problem that still exists today. Exactly. Like, this is not changed. Exactly. Yes. Right, right. So I love the point that you gave about still receiving a world-class education if you can get to certain spaces. But my wondering, and this is just the wondering, is, is you know, my teachers of color also gave me a deeper level of grit to deal with the systemic issues that were still present in the school that I still watched them go through. And, you know, if, we're, if, if teachers of color are, are, are in mass having a net positive effect on the actual educational attainment, great. But my fear is that this data is masking that teachers of color are help instill in kids of color deeper grit with dealing with the system as it is and not the changing of the system as it should be. That's my big problem with, with how some of, some of the um, things that we've tried to do to retain teachers of color and to, and to create that experience has been to raise the level of, of, of survivability in something, in something rather than changing how it goes. Because I can't find a teacher anywhere that would say, I would love to teach this class how I've been trained and I know the science of teaching allows me to do, but I can't because I have to do this in all of these different ways, whether it's connected to testing, whether it's connected to, to, to policies. Um, but uh, I get teachers who will come and teach in, in the Afrocentric learning program at, at the Arts Center for the African Diaspora, where your requirement is to do interesting and engaging stuff. And all of a sudden teachers are like, I love this environment. And then the program ends and I'm like, okay, I got to go back to the school year. So I, I, there's some systemic things that are in the mix here too, that I think if, if, if the system was different than, than it is now, mm -hmm. that it might also be more attractive for a person of color to go into teaching in the first place. Yeah, I mean, you know, I was also in the IB program. Anthony, you and I were in high school around the same at the same time. Uh, yep. I was in the IB program at Highland, and I was often the only person of color in my classes. Mm -hmm. And I think it was like my senior year. I, you know, I had no friends of color. I mean, really, I had very little friends of color, very few friends of color because I was in all IB classes all the time. And so I think it was like my senior year when I was like, wait, why am I killing myself? in these IB classes, I could go to the Please. AP classes and like hang out with like people who can't, who look like Please. me and who get my lifestyle. <laughs> Please, here's how funny and deep this goes. I prided myself on having gone to, gotten to the highest level math class at Central. And I'm walking around my senior year with gaps in my, in my schedule because I thought I had done the daggone thing. Like, mm -hmm. I was cool. Mm -hmm. So here we are, years, years later, my peer group, one of my friends, went to high school, went to Central with, with her. Um, we were a group of friends that all married into, into each other. And so we, we've got a squad, right, that stayed a squad <laughs> after it, right? But 
I'm sitting there at a table. We're sitting at a friend's dinner table, and I'm like, yeah, you know, I, I, I we were talking about being the only person of color in in, in these classes until you got to choir or some or these other classes where all of a sudden you could talk to all your friends of color who laughed at you for talking funny because you was hanging around <laughs> with the white folks all the time mm-hmm. in your classes. Mm-hmm. So, so as we're navigating that, I'm like, yeah, I made it all the way to the highest math class at Central, and she turns to me and she goes. I don't remember you in my advanced topics class. I didn't even know <laughs> that there was another level oh, of all no. my kids <laughs> that was designed especially because, like, like this, this it, it underscored, and, and all of us at the table, all the folks of color laughed and laughed and laughed. At, at, because this, <laughs> even, even getting to your point, Brother Kenneth, this world-class education, I had mm-hmm. gotten through the veil and I'm into these classes where folks are talking about acceleration and 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 talking about mm-hmm. challenge and talking and, and pushing you to all these different things, right? Um, yeah, we're supposed to, to turn be and- right. We're supposed to be the very best, right? Mm-hmm. But then in all those classes, I'd always get, you know, wait, you're Asian. What do you think about this? Or what do Asian oh. people, you know? And it was so uncomfortable. And I, and I can't believe it took me until like my senior year when I was like, screw this. Why am I putting it, myself through this? If it wasn't for Dolores Henderson, who snatched me up out of out of special ed when 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 nobody talked to my mother before putting me into this into this special quote unquote reading group, and I remember her snatching me up out of there and checking folks. If it wasn't for uh, Ezra Highland at the University of Minnesota, who actually taught me how to read for engagement in African American lit. If it wasn't for all of these you know key players, I would have never touched education, mm-hmm. right? And then, mm-hmm. but then there's bright spots, right? Um, look at all the way to the administrator, St. Louis Park. St. Louis Park Schools has a black superintendent. They're like the next level is mostly folks of color. They've got, you know, they're growing in teachers of color all across the board. Dr. Sylvie Oon, who's got an amazing uh, uh, story of, 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 of being uh, uh, coming from Cambodia, has, has an amazing story. And they've completely gotten rid of their gifted and talented program. They said, no, no. Every single kid is gifted and talented. Now you need to hunt it down and figure out what the gift and talent is. Like, and they pissed off everybody. I'm glad that you brought up St. Louis Park because there's another educator at St. Louis Park um, who is teaching an intro to education co- course um, Dr. Leanne in their Stevens. high school. Um, her name yes. is Dr. Leanne Stevens. Yes. And she is, I mean, the things that I hear about her class, the things that she shares about her class are beautiful, moving, and I think are the counterpoint to what you said earlier in terms of, you know, are our teachers of color just teaching students grit to make it through a racist system? I think that in that classroom, and I think there are other educators of color in Minneapolis public schools and, you know, across our metro area that are, you know, pushing the envelope in their classrooms and saying, look, this space is for us. This space is for you. I welcome you here. And I think that's a really beautiful thing. But going back to Dr. Leanne Stevens, She was the, she is, was, I don't know how that goes, the 2006 Minnesota Teacher of the Year. Five years before that, she was a teacher Mm -hmm. in Minneapolis public schools. She was a teacher of color in Minneapolis public schools. And she had to get let Mm. go because of last in, first out policies. So I'm not trying to just like harp on this point around last in, first out policies, around layoffs. But this is how we lose our great talent. Mm -hmm. It's not because there's not a commitment there, but it's, it's because... There's this culture that says, you know what, this, you know, you're going to be isolated. You're going to have to go through a lot. And if you decide to stay, you might be able to make a huge difference. You might be the best teacher in the entire state of Minnesota in a few years, but we're going to let you go because you've only been here, 
you know, less years than our 30 year white veteran teacher that's been in our building. Right. And like that is not okay. And so that's why we're working so, so hard right now to try to protect our teachers of color and our indigenous teachers, because we know the genius that they have and that they unlock in our students. Right. And that they can find in our students and elevate in our students of color and our white students. Right. And, you know, one of the things to lose to your question, I don't think I fully answered your question around why it's also beneficial for white students to have teachers of color and indigenous teachers. And there was a, I was talking to a parent about this and, you know, why they thought it was so important that their white student had teachers of color. And they had shared that it's really important for all students to have teachers or to have mirrors and windows in their teachers, right? Mirrors to see themselves and to know that they can do great things and they can lead, you know, be in places of authority and, you know, educate and, you know, work with all types of students, but also windows into other cultures, other ways of doing, other ways of thinking. And I thought that was such a profound point that like I really carry with me. And I just, I think that we cannot both have a culture of saying that this is, a you know, of like isolation, creating a challenging work environment, dealing with microaggressions, dealing with, you know, people thinking that you're less than, and also have a system where that says, and, you know, we're going to disproportionately push you out. I just think that, like, that is obviously not a tenable situation as we start to become a more and more diverse community, diverse city. Like, we're going to need a more diverse workforce and especially a more diverse teaching workforce. I'm going to throw one more piece into this conversation before we end to contextualize what uh, is also at play here. So Minnesota is a land of liberals, you know, uh, we, you know, we were the first state in the country to pass, uh, a bias, um, ordinance back, you know, with, uh, just, just decades ago, right? So we pride ourselves often. I mean, certainly there's a segment that is not liberal, right? But there's, there's this, uh, mindset that we are so open-minded and liberal. And when the murder of George Floyd occurred, you know, there was just this, uh, sweltering you know, response here. What can we do? What can we do? Right. So in essence, we got this racial reckoning happening. At the same time, there is a reluctance from these unions to walk the talk, which is keep the teachers who are BIPOC. Right. I mean, how do you begin to say um, that we are in a, a period of racial reckoning and still have this risk which is very real of losing talented and brilliant BIPOC teachers at the same time. In my mind, the two don't exist at the same time, right? And, and that's a problem that I'm having right now. Listening is I, I have a level of um, frustration and to some degree intolerance for a continued speak that comes our way, right? That says we believe in in advancing racial equity, we believe in having BIPOC leaders, so on and so forth. But then when the actual actions are called the bear, that doesn't get delivered. And, and you best believe following, uh, if if a union were to make that choice, following that would be a whole lot of lawsuits claiming some kind of reverse racism for keeping BIPOC uh, teachers of color over white folks. This is something that's already been passed around and been lobbed at some school districts across the country who've tried to make a uh, change. There's so much that's that's here. Brother Kenneth, go ahead and get the last word and then we'll close out for the day. Yeah, well, I just think that, you know, it's important to, 
I, I know I shared a lot. Of, we talked a lot about a lot of frustrating things. And I think it's important to you know try to end on a positive note. The positive note is that Robbinsdale and St. Louis Park actually have figured it out and baked it into their contract to say we can protect teachers of color. And so they have done that. And we're asking Minneapolis Public Schools to follow suit and do the same. Um, Luce, you're totally right. You know, watching all of these, you know, different progressive institutions, um, organizations, unions come out after the murder of George Floyd at the hands of the Minneapolis Police Department, say like Black Lives Matter and all of these different things. It, it felt hollow and it feels hollow to then say like they aren't willing to make any changes in their own um, in their own institution that they have control over. It's great to march with us. It's great to, you know, change your Facebook profile, all the picture, all those kinds of things. But that, that feels really hard to me. What I will say though is that the union and the district both have put forward proposals to figure out a way to protect teachers of color and trying to figure out a way that would stand up in court. Um, Again, I think the issue comes down to we have a really, really short timeline now, another two weeks before teachers of color are probably going to start finding out that they're laid off if no protections come into play. So we're looking at the end of February. Our concern and our issue is right now is that Minneapolis Public Schools just passed a strategic plan that said, you know what, we want to increase the the diversity of our teaching force. We need to increase the amount of teachers of color that we have. And so for us, that's like, okay, that's a demonstrated action. That's accountability that you're putting out there for the community to say that's what we want to do. Now it's time for the Minneapolis Federation of Teachers and the union to also say, all right, we're going to do our part. We'll create these protections in our contract. And that's ultimately what we're asking for. And we think that it's possible because both sides have said that it's something that they want to do. Both sides have figured out a way to propose it. Now it's just about them coming to an agreement. And I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope that the Minneapolis Federation of Teachers is willing to get this done before a strike starts and before the end of February so that we don't have to lose any of our great, amazing teachers of color who make a difference for our students every single day. Well, absolute shout out. You know, you mentioned two school districts that are near and dear to my heart. Robbinsdale, who who I worked with quite a few teachers out there, and Stephanie Crosby, who hired me for my first job in education was the director of HR for Robbinsdale Schools. And I've seen her recruit many and retain many teachers and, and staff of color for that district. And of course, shout out to Aston Osai over at St. Louis Park Schools. And of course, Dr. Leanne Stevens, who's my big sister in the work. We go on civil rights research tours together uh, many years. Of course, COVID has interrupted it recently. Brother Kenneth, thank you so much for helping to add some context to, 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 to this thorny and, and nuanced situation. There's so much that we have to put in front of us as we continue to, 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 to fight this. I am absolutely looking for the day where um, folks can be like the teachers. And, and Lee, I saw you put it in the chat several times in the show, Abbott Elementary, fighting the good fight despite all the stuff that gets thrown at them. And yes. while it's, while it's, while yes. it's mocking, um, you some know, go check, I know, check out that show. Some teachers I know have said it is way too real and they can't even watch it because it is you can't so even watch real. It. <laughs> well, hey, you know, and, and, and maybe at some point we'll start doing things differently that make folks even want to be in the classroom in the first place. Thank you so much, Brother Kenneth. This has been Counter Stories. I'm Anthony Galloway, pastor of St. Mark's AME Church, Duluth, Minnesota, and senior partner at the Dendros Group. I'm Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General with the state of Minnesota. Any comments and opinions that I've stated are strictly my own and should not be attributed to my employer. I'm Don Eubanks, associate of Dendros Group and member of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe Indians. And I'm Halili, owner of the Other Media Group and Counter Stories producer. 
And Brother Kenneth, can you introduce yourself to our community? And I'm Kenneth Abon, the Executive Director of the Advancing Equity Coalition. This has been Counter Stories, a co-production of the Counter Stories crew, the other media group, and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities, with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. For our full conversation, please visit counterstories.com.